Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. This is Yannick Noah. Hi, this is Manjeet Bala from beautiful Victoria, British Columbia. You're listening to The Incomparable Tennis Podcast. Well, thank you very much, Majit, for introducing this edition of the Tennis Podcast. Catherine and myself, David, are here. We we kind of would like you to join us, Majit, if you wouldn't mind, to help us with the podcast, because uh, uh, we haven't got Matt, for a start. He's got COVID. He's been in bed for five days. Catherine's got a, a, a sore throat, and she sounds like this. I, I fear, Majit, you will today find this podcast all too comparable uh, but we're here and we're going to do our best despite the fact that David literally has a numb face yes I've been to the dentist and I I, I can't quite make my mouth work normally so uh, those are our excuses that we thought we'd get out of the way early on here um, but we do have uh, lots of tennis to talk about and obviously it's been an incredible week in the tennis world uh, an incredible couple of weeks, really, since the US Open, hasn't it? So we thought we'd be, we'd better do it <laughs> somehow. Uh, so here we are. Um, and uh, just to say, if uh, you'd like to introduce a show yourself, like Majid has, you can do that uh, by becoming a friend of the Tennis Podcast at the intro level. Many of you have done and uh, hugely appreciate all the support. And uh, as friends of the Tennis Podcast, you'll get access to now more than 20 shows, most of which in which we sound like our actual selves. Um, and uh, most recently in a Q&A, which I quite enjoyed doing, Catherine, when we were in New York in slightly different times. Mm. Let's be honest, David, better times. <laughs> yes, yes, much better. Much better times. Uh, I, I can tell you, though, Catherine, since we last spoke, and this is good news, we've drawn the winner for the Australian Open competition. So we have a winner for that incredible AO travel package. Would you like to know who's won? I would, yes. Um, I, I Probably warning to the Whitaker family right now, who are, from whom I really got it in the neck for... Um, banning them from entering this competition <laughs> they said we're, we're paying friends just like anybody else yes 
Mm. I, I probably should have put that in the small print, shouldn't I? But no, I Whitaker's didn't. Whitaker's not eligible. <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, well, anyway, I can tell you that the winner of those two return economy flights to Melbourne, three nights accommodation, four days of tickets to the Australian Open in January, and a premium experience is going to be Lynn. Lynn from Massachusetts, who's uh, come out of the electronic hat, uh, out of which there was a, there were a lot of entries. I, I was a bit taken aback by just how many friends entered, and it was it was great to see that many people entering. Lynn, upon being informed that she'd won, uh, needed to be reassured that it wasn't a hoax. Uh, she said, "I never win anything, and I'm shaking with excitement." So, oh, I love that. We were delighted that uh, that Lynn was so happy to to have won. It's a blooming uh, big, good prize, Lynn. You're it is have a great, great prize. Time. Yeah, it's a really cool prize. So a big, big thank you to AO Travel for partnering with us during the US Open, for laying on such a brilliant prize. They're also offering a 5% discount for Friends of the Tennis podcast. So the Whitaker family, if you'd like to take advantage of that, uh, you can email us, <laughs> friends at tennispodcast.net if you're a friend, and we'll provide you with the details. So, you know, it's not all bad news to I'll the many of you. I'll that... pass along the info. Yeah. The many of you that didn't win, you do get 5% off if you do want to go. Um, so, yeah, they can sort out your accommodation, AO Travel Can, tickets for the tennis, accommodation, faff-free, Catherine-style, ozopentravel.com for full details. Outsource your faff for, uh, with a 5% discount. You, uh, <laughs> nobody's. They've not taken me up on that uh, tagline yet. No. I, I offer it up for uh, minimal royalties. Yeah, get in and, touch. Uh, I'm waiting by the phone. She, she she has actually used that in a number of conversations with me to describe mm. things she's paid money for. Uh, outsourcing. Oh, it, my my current state, I there <laughs> I would pay money for someone to, I mean, eat breakfast for me in the morning. <laughs> it's, it's a really ropey state of affairs. Oh dear! There Sorry is about no this, folks. That I won't outsource. Other this than the, the podcast, David. Yeah. See, we we thought about outsourcing this, but no, there's only us two left. But then Matt got ill. <laughs> exactly. We were going to just let Matt <laughs> do a monologue. The bench is empty. Exactly. Wouldn't even do a voice note for 48 minutes like I asked for. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, we get to talk, Catherine, because we at least have watched along with everybody else that I seem to not only know from within tennis, but outside of tennis. We've watched the Labour Cup and the moments, most importantly, that Roger Federer's career ended as a professional tennis player. And uh, even knowing it was all coming and even having done the interview with Ivan Lubacic and gone to his press conference last week and kind of expected tears, I was I have to say I was surprised there weren't there wasn't some emotion in that press conference in a way. And I was slightly nervous about asking him what he was most going to miss. But he seemed so uh, at ease with his decision and as though he'd already processed it. And and he, he, he described in that press conference, didn't he, that he, he'd kind of done some of the the grieving for his career in the in the weeks and months that had gone before, before he'd actually made the announcement. So he was kind of ready for it. But I was still taken aback, massively taken aback and, and overwhelmed by just how emotional those scenes were on Friday night. What, 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 did, you, what did you make of it all? Where on earth do you start? I thought uh, those scenes, uh, which ended up 
up um, unfolding at about 1am on Saturday morning, in fact, didn't they? Because scheduling Alex de Menor against Andy Murray, even with a match tiebreak instead of a uh, a third set. Sorry, a laver breaker? What are we Apparently called? a laver breaker. Laver breaker. Mm, that is never going to happen. Anyway, even with a match tiebreak instead of a third set, that just had tedious marathon written all over it was actually really good fun but I mean sort of tedious in terms of you just knew exactly what those points were going to look like um and you know exhausting and never-ending um so it wasn't until about 1am that that Roger Federer struck his last professional tennis ball um I would like to put just a little bit of an asterisk after that comment because you know, I'm sure we'll come on to this when we more generally discuss the Labour Cup and have the same discussion that we do annually about it. I'm I'm not sure I do consider that to have been his last professional tennis match. I do consider it to have been his formal farewell, though. Um, and I, I'm not sure I've ever seen anything quite like it. In fact, I know I haven't. I was completely overwhelmed by it, in fact, and very blindsided by that um I we all knew it was coming both in the macro and in the micro sense you know he's 41 years old of course his retirement's been coming for a long time he hasn't played a professional match in well over a year we knew he had had surgery we knew he was up against it to to get back to professional tennis let alone to competing for for grand slam titles and then in the micro we knew since his his announcement, we'd, you'd recorded a, a brilliant podcast about it and Matt and I had submitted our voice notes and, you know, had the opportunity to sort of assemble um, uh, our feelings on it all. I'd listened to his whole press conference, which which you went down to, David, and I'd I had the opportunity to process all of that and... Um, digest all of his thoughts about it and as you said he seemed completely in control of the decision of the emotion and then it was like he he released the 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 hold on the the dam didn't he and I suppose that's been characteristic of his career in, incredible control and self-control an incredibly controlled person but then these little moments of extreme release where you suddenly realize what it all means and how human he is. Um, I'm thinking in particular of the 2009 Australian Open final and that it's killing me moment and Rod Laver presenting the trophy, Rafael Nadal pipping him at the post there and him attempting to do the speech and simply crumpling, really. Um, and, and that's what Friday night was like at, at the O2 Arena. I, I, you know, the match, frankly, was underwhelming. The match didn't feel like much of an event. I found it quite quite difficult to watch because Federer was so compromised. Um, you know, I was sort of thinking, I, I don't need to see this. This actual match doesn't feel like anything of particular significance. I'm glad, in principle, that he's getting it. I'm glad that it exists. I'm getting. I'm glad that he has this opportunity to feel like he's taking control of his his retirement within the confines of of what the knee is dictating um but then the match ended and the event started um with 
the 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 only de- detractor from the whole thing for me was Ellie Goulding, um, <laughs> who I don't know what she thought she'd been booked for. Um, <laughs> I don't think she did either. <laughs> no, she thought she'd been booked for the Lava Cup. <laughs> that's, that's what she tweeted afterwards. Really chuffed to be uh, to sing at the Lava Cup last night, and it was one of those, you know, she did a sort of medley of her, I what I assume are her greatest hits, which I was sort of listening into the lyrics, thinking, is there going to be a lyric at some point, you know, that bears some sort of relation to Roger Federer's career or Federer and the Dolls? rivalry is it all gonna click why why ellie goulding is here um that moment never came anyway uh poor ellie i don't think it ever came for her either but apart from that um the outpouring of completely uncontrolled emotion was extremely overwhelming not just from roger federer i think in particular for me from rafael nadal who was just in pieces absolutely in pieces it was it was um it's it's really stayed with me for the last few days it might even have made me ill David (laughs) because um yeah it really hit me very hard um and and for you I know there's extra emotional weight to to Federer's retirement and the sort of you express very well, you know, the book ending for you of going to that final press conference, having been at his first professional press conference. I'm sure you were hit in similar, in similarly hard ways. Yeah, and I, and that's not because of any relationship I have with him. I don't have a relationship with him. Yes, he 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 knows who I am from because of all those years ago. It's it's in my case. I think it's just simply a case of age, and real. It's it's a sort of moment that hits you when you realise you're getting older and things are changing, and somebody can come into your life like Federer came into mine, and and uh, and that happened to my the first year of my professional career on the on the ATP circuit as a communications manager and seeing this 16 year old and me me not going through the best of times when I when I saw him in Gestad back in 1998 I'd just been quite unwell at a tennis tournament basically because I'd overdone it I've just pushed myself too hard I'd ended up in hospital this was my first tournament back I met Federer as part of my duties and and he just he just had this disarming way of putting me at ease and and making everything seem fresh and enjoyable and doable. I don't know how quite how to put it other than to say that he he just made it all ve- seem like this was a good time and that's kind of what he's been able to do throughout his career is make everybody feel like this doesn't need to be hard work. This is actually great fun. Yes, you have to travel and all the rest of it, but this is great. I'm a tennis player and and so I always enjoyed that about him, but seeing him retire at the other end, so long afterwards. I mean, not many players have a 24-year career. Some do, you know, Martin Navratilova, Jimmy Connors, but there are, there are not many. And that's the first time that I've kind of gone through a player's career of that length and come out the other side. And it, it did make it stop me in my tracks a bit to remind me of, of the fact that we're getting older. <laughs> and Okay, there's my midlife crisis out of the way in this podcast. Um, but... Um, and I think that's if you, kind if you of... you also spent the weekend listening to Thunder Road, David. <laughs> <laughs> like, where's Matt when you need him? I know. Bloody COVID. I need... 
<laughs> but I, I think to some degree that happened to Rafael Nadal on Friday night. Mm. Because sitting there, I mean, look, he's going through a major event in his life at the moment anyway. He, his wife is heavily pregnant. She, it's not been an easy pregnancy from what we're, what we're told in reports. And he'd made this incredible gesture, I think, to come away from home to turn up for Roger Federer's retirement party, effectively. He, he didn't come for the Labour Cup on its own. If, if Roger Federer's not retiring, he's not playing that Labour Cup, and totally understandably so. That's not to diss the Labour Cup. It's just that, look, he's got a massive personal event going on in his family. He's, he's turned up one day later than everybody else. He's played the match. He's, he's had the aftermath, and he's left immediately, and, and 100% understandably. But... Sitting there, and I'm sure some of the emotions of what he's going through in his in his life at the moment are part of it. But I think he's seen Roger Federer, his greatest rival, and a marker for his own career and his own life, and ever present, depart the scene. And inevitably, he's thinking about his own tennis mortality in that moment. I'm sure. Um, Andy Murray slightly alluded to it in one or two of his comments, and I think it's partly why we saw such a a fatigued performance from Murray on Friday night himself is that he's invested so much emotion. He's experienced so much emotion over the last few days, talking to these other players in a way that he probably wouldn't ever have done before. And I think it is one of the the, the, the things that is a real positive about the Labour Cup is it puts these players in each other's company in a way they're not usually in each other's company. But I think it exhausted Murray, absolutely decimated Nadal, in emotion, in an emotional sense, but to see them sitting there, you could see first of all in the distance. You could see Nadal when Federer is getting paraded in the centre of the court and he's applauding all sides. You could see him start to break down just quietly on his own at the back, trying to stay out the way because he knew he couldn't control it anymore. And then once he once he sat down with Federer alongside him, I know that there's that shot that you you sent to, to Matt and I and then you eventually tweeted it and said you don't think you'll ever get over this. looking at that that shot of the two of them side by side weeping, weeping uncontrollably, um, unapologetically. Um, and then a, a wonderful photo from Ella Ling got shared as well. The, the following morning, um, the photographer Ella Ling and a couple of other photographers I know got that shot as well. A Federer putting a reassuring, consoling, understanding hand on top of Rafael Nadal's hand in front of 17,000 people and millions watching all around the world while they sobbed uncontrollably. And I think that that is a beautiful thing, I really do, that, that they are prepared to show how they really feel in the moment and about each other to the world. And that, And it's... Yeah, it's something I'll never get over, and it's something I I'll, I don't want to get over. I want to be reminded of that because I think it's a it's a great a great thing that they have brought to the sport. Aside from their tennis and their rivalry and everything else, it's it's maybe helped a lot of people to to understand that you can show emotion and it's just fine. Mm. Yeah, my my stomach just lurched just hearing you describe that photo, David. Um, let alone actually looking at the thing. I can't imagine ever looking at that photo and it not stirring something in me it, it it's quite extraordinary there's so much in it so much that I'm not 
not sure I'm even able to describe. I mean, that is why rivalries matter in the sport. That that picture. I know not every rival rivalry can be that rivalry or be Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova. M- maybe none will ever be as good as those two again. I don't know. Um, but even just, you know, an ounce of what that, that picture demonstrated is is worth having in the sport and essential to the sport even. It was interesting how Andy Murray didn't let the walls of the dam up, did he? I felt like he couldn't let it in. He wasn't in a place of readiness for whatever reason to to let it go on Friday night, whereas Nadal just did, just completely let everything go. And again, Nadal is somebody that, incredibly controlled incredibly controlled and then he doesn't mean it's not there you know doesn't mean they don't have their outlets for it it's just we rarely see those outlets and and we saw it all on Friday night and yeah I'm sorry I'm doing such a poor job of um <clears throat> of su- summing up all the um all the emotion that it evoked but it's almost almost too much um, maybe maybe Ellie Goulding's got some lyrics that <laughs> that can help us all process <laughs> process this moment. It's like it, trying to get inside the mind of Nadal and those tears and where they were coming from. I think you've I think you've done a brilliant job of that. But it's like it's like Federer was his totem. You know, it's like Federer tethered him to the tennis world even more so than Nadal did for Federer because of course Federer was there before Nadal. Nadal's never known tennis without Federer. He's always been defined by Federer. It's like Matt with the big three. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is. It absolutely else. is. He doesn't know what tennis looks like. He doesn't know what he looks like. Now I do back him on the court to still be the same person for, for the fact of Federer's not being there, not to it affect him tennis wise because that's who he is isn't he when he plays tennis matches he just goes into a zone where all he sees is a tennis ball you know and is is magically able to block everything else out but I I do think off the court and in his life this is going to have quite a profound effect on him Um, now as you said obviously he's got a lot else going on that all distract him in in well mostly wonderful ways but you know stressful ways as well um but it it's going to be interesting we may never know we may never hear Rafael Nadal tell us or express to us exactly how how profound an effect it's having on him and and will have maybe he will never be able to um but it gosh it's a lot it's it's mm. a lot for us and it's clearly a lot for them well, and I, I do think it might help them both. I certainly think Federer, Federer understood when he was at that press conference that being amongst his peers in that moment, you know, you will get on to the, the whether it was his final press professional match or not, but it was certainly his goodbye. And it was, it was amongst familiar company and important company for him. I think getting all of that out will do him good in terms oh, yeah. of moving on. And I think it might do Nadal good mm. to just, you know, he's he's been fa- forced to face 
it. I think it might even do Murray good, or, or all of them really. It's just given them a chance to just consider where they are in their careers and lives. Um, and uh, so I'm I'm grateful for that for, for on the, on their behalf. Um, you know, we'll see where where else their lives and their careers end up taking them. J- just on that moment, Catherine, I mean, we'll, we'll go on to the results of the Lever Cuff in a minute. But you, that line about it not being considered his final professional match, I assume therefore you mean that the Hubert Hercatch match at Wimbledon is is what you consider to be his final professional match, Federer's. Yeah, unfortunately, I, I would love to think that his last set played wasn't a six-love set lost to Hubert Hercatch at on Centre Court of Wimbledon, but uh, I think I think it was. That's not to... S- I, you know, I'm wary of going over old ground, relay the cup. I don't think it does it down to call it an exhibition. I believe the best thing for the Labour Cup is to totally embrace and lean into being an exhibition, big it up as the best exhibition in the world. And maybe, maybe over years, decades, it will grow into something more than that. You know, as we said, the Ryder Cup is technically an exhibition, um, but you can't create meaning out of nothing. And I don't think that rankings points or ATP legitimacy does does anything to to shortcut any of that I just think that that and many other aspects of it just make it seem like they are trying to have it all they're trying to have legitimacy as well as the gloss of the exhibition you know they had to change the rules to allow Roger Federer to be able to play there is absolutely no way that Roger Federer was the best team selection for for winning that match and accumulating points, which if it were a legitimate tournament, that would come ahead of of everything else. Now, I, I'm absolutely delighted that Roger Federer played that tennis match. I'm delighted that the Labour Cup exists and existed and gave Roger Federer that opportunity and that platform to have a place to say goodbye, to do it on his own terms. It felt really fitting but it was an exhibition. That match, the tournament was an exhibition. It's clearly an exhibition that meant quite a lot to some players. Definitely means a lot to John McEnroe. We know he, you know, I've seen him play Champion Store events, many of them, which are exhibitions. He can't turn that tap off. Um, But it's not a professional tennis match. That wasn't, uh, and I don't consider any of the matches played over the weekend, professional tour level tennis matches and I I think that is fine for the Labour Cup I don't think exhibition is a dirty word it won't it, it, it won't be for everybody um, not everybody's into watching exhibition sport but plenty of people will be there's a market for it clearly because it's it's packaged so well for those that do want to engage and indulge in it mm. I, I think one of the problems tennis has is the word exhibition generally being associated associated with hit and giggle, and mm. this wasn't hit and giggle at all. This was a re, you know a really competitive exhibition. I I think most of the, the most of the tennis was quite good. I think that that players were trying to win matches. You know, at least that's how I how it looked to me. Consciously, I don't think anybody's sort of trying not to win. Um, and 
just generally speaking, I mean, I think it is brilliantly produced. Um, I, I think they do a fantastic job with the event. They sell the thing out. All the things that, that we've said in the past still still apply today. And I think that that may grow in the future. Um, but look, just on the question of it being staying within rules and that sort of thing, if if it's the epitome of sport, I don't think John McEnroe says absolutely fine. Bend the rules <laughs> to, to my potential detriment, uh, or to you know, or to whatever it might be. He, it, it's just not going to be like that. Frankly, I think I'm not sure if it was like a Ryder Cup that John McEnroe would still be in the job, having lost four times in a row. Um, that's not to say that. Obviously, he had a worse hand dealt to him in terms of players at his disposal than Team Europe and all the rest of it. But still, he lost four times in a row. The last time was 14-1. Okay, they won this one. Anyway, the I, look, I, I tend to I, I tend to agree. Federer lost six love in that final set of that match at Wimbledon, and I'm delighted that he had this chance. But it's it's not the same, and uh, and that's just that's just the way it is. It's quite it's quite interesting talking to my circle of friends and in fact people that were messaging me that I haven't heard from in ages who were messaging me about because they were watching the Labour Cup and they were watching Federer's retirement moment and being introduced to this format and absolutely loving it and a lot of people on social media when I tweeted that Federer's movement bothered me watching him play like this and it's just I just find it sad it's just a reminder that he's not able to do it anymore that was another little reminder that he's right to be retiring because he can't move properly and not everybody could see that and I I understand why because we've seen it in the Champions Tour in the past you if if you're not exposed to it regularly you can you can be lulled into thinking they can still do it uh, at a certain high level, and st- it doesn't mean they're not not athletes of any kind, and they're not s- hugely skillful. You could see his skill set still. You could still see the instincts and the, the ability he's got, but he wasn't serving a volleying at all. Of course, he wasn't. His knees, his knees weren't allowing him to do that. Um, and and if you want to to be sure of it, do what I've done over the last week. I've gone back and watched a lot of him in his, at his best in the last week on YouTube. I've watched the 2015 match against Andy Murray in the semi-finals. I've watched him beat Andy Roddick in the semi-finals of the Australian Open in 2007. I've watched the Wimbledon final even only three years ago against Novak Djokovic when he nearly won. His movement is crazy. He's all over the court. He's not breathing heavily. He's not ever once juddering to a halt and not being able to push off. It's night and day, the difference. And of course it is. That's why he's retiring. So, you know, but I, I'm i just, I'm still happy this ex- event exists. I'm, I, I think it's mostly good for the sport. There are things I'd like to change. I would like to bring women in and have it, have it be a men and women tournament. And I, I'd love to see everybody get together and just make sure it fits in without getting in the way of anything else. But, you know, generally speaking, I think it's a great, it's a really well-run event and I enjoy seeing the players in a different scenario and I like the fact that 100,000 people came through the doors and enjoyed it. So, all good. Um, just in terms of the the matches that we saw, um, it was th- two all after day one. Quite interesting this, Catherine. You know how they've got this... Uh, this scoring system of one point for a win on day one, two points for a win on 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 the Saturday, and then three on the Sunday. Which personally, I, I don't like that. I 
I don't like that kind of, it's a manipulation of trying to make sure it's all still live on Sunday. Mm. And unless, look, I don't mind it as long as you're not saying that that's sport. <laughs> Mm. That 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 very much is exhibition. It's a bit WWE, you know. And again, I don't mind. I don't mind it as long as it's that. Mm. Um, but but as it turned out, they didn't play the final match of the day. And if mm. if it had only been one point for a win all the way through, they'd have played the final match, which uh, which was which was quite interesting. Did you did you do a stat, David? I I, I, I did a stat, and I could have used it in the newsletter. And in the absence of Matt being ill, and now I've given it away. <laughs> now I've got to think of another one. <laughs> Sign up to the newsletter and see if I figure it figure it out. Um, but yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, it was eight four after day two, which you know should have should have been five three if it was one point for a win. Um, and then Team Worlds won the next three points on. Sunday, effectively, but that then ended the whole thing because they're all worth three each. They they suffered Team Europe from not having a decent doubles team, didn't they? And you know, part of that was Federer Nadal playing on Friday, which you know that was a an event entirely separate, really, um, from the the world versus Europe competition Berrettini and Murray Andy Murray I think is a very good doubles player but he needs the right partner and I don't think Matteo Berrettini plays has ever played a whole lot of doubles has he that that didn't gel um and then what doubles partnership did we have on uh, I think they did win the Saturday doubles didn't they on the Saturday it was Berrettini and Djokovic wasn't it they did win actually straight sets over Sock and uh, Dumanor. So, you know, not a disaster doubles-wise, but Jack Sock was... <laughs> was He was in all of them. He was, Yeah, he was in all <laughs> of them. He was a bit of a hero, wasn't he, for Team World? And he was, you know, rankings-wise, um, in terms of singles, should have been the weak link across both teams, shouldn't he? So these are teams selected not on the basis of rankings or matchups or doubles teams it's selected on the basis of selling tickets and being glitzy and eye-catching which is absolutely fine um but again it's having your cake and eat it eating it isn't it you know it's not those aren't necessarily the selections you'd have made if the the one and only goal um were accumulating as many as many points as possible hmm. the the uh, the other thing that really cost them i mean one was they they just kept giving away leads uh, on the final day they were they won that final set that first set of the doubles 6-2 did murray and uh, berrettini and then sitsipas won the first set against tiafo 6-1 and both both of them looked like they were just going to be runaway wins for team europe and and actually you know fair play particularly to tiafo for for coming back in that final one He's just so good when he gets into it. When he, his, the difference between him when he's into it and fired up and the crowd's involved and him when those things are not the case, you are looking at two completely different players. Um, and we've seen that throughout his career. And it was, it was great to see London getting a bit of the Tiafo vibe, I, I, I thought. I, mm. I enjoyed that. London got to see Tiafo in a laver breaker. <laughs> they what did. Could, what could be better? <laughs> and actually... Felix Sogialiasim got a great win over Djokovic. Now, 
Djokovic on the Saturday night was so good that, uh, I mean, I, I, don't scary, feel like, I don't feel like I should be getting taken aback by how good Novak Djokovic is. But this is a guy who hasn't played a, a tennis match on a competitive court since Wimbledon. That's a long time out. And, uh, and I mean, this le- the level he produced w- was just, just ridiculous. I, I thought on uh, on Saturday night, and uh, and and it was Tiafoe he beat, wasn't it? And and then he teamed up for the doubles as well. But then the next day he came out, and I didn't see the match. I was at, I was at my kids' tennis, but people were saying that he had he looked as though he got a bit of a sore wrist, which is not that surprising. I mean, that's two matches in one night, having not played for quite a while. And Ojeda seemed was was really good, and and he continues to sort of confound, doesn't he? Because I I feel like I've got a, got to grips with who Ojeda Asim is, one way or the other, and then he goes and either disappoints me or absolutely surprises me with how well he's played. And I suppose therefore I should should stop putting him in a box. But I am interested that he's able to produce it some of the time and not more often, really. Oh, and it's and it's when those times are that are completely confounding as well. Um, you know, he's beaten Alcaraz and Djokovic in uh, in the week since the U.S. Open, hasn't he? But but lost first round of the U.S. Open to Jack Draper, who played brilliantly. But you know, I remember you commentated on that match, David, and Jack Draper just looked like the higher ranked player. He looked like the more solid player. Right? It's mm. one thing, you know, a kid showing up and playing lights out purple patch tennis but it's another thing looking more solid and secure and confident than Felix Orgelia seem um I still I don't think the problem is the top level for Orgelia seem I don't think you know beating Alcaraz and Djokovic doesn't tell me that much new about him what what he needs to change to to sort of clear up some of my confusion um and hesitation over him at the moment is the 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 inexplicable losses um, and the one sidedness of them. It was uh, Canada, wasn't it? Who who was it to? One of he lost, I think, in the quarterfinals. One of the worst. It might have been Casper Ruud. One of the worst performances I I've ever seen. Actually, he was awful, absolutely awful, and that it was quite alarming. I remember that was as alarmed as I've been about Felix Auger-Leon because that was home crowd. He had been playing well all week. Um, and he just did not show up in a way that you don't really see from top players, you know. Yes, bad days, but it was it was it was very drastic. Um, so I still that question mark very much remains over him for me. But look, these are good wins. His his top level is fantastic. Um, I just worry about the, that ability to go through gears that the very top players have. Yeah, it was six one six two that match you referenced in Canada. Well, it was Casperud. So, yeah, you're yeah. right. Um, that was a quite a quite a lopsided one. That one. So that was the Labour Cup. Hold up! What was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This edition of the Tennis Podcast is sponsored by Tennis Channel, and Tennis Channel Plus is the place to watch the French Open. They've got every court live, and you can watch on your phone or your smart TV, both in HD. Matt, this sounds like your kind of thing. Yeah, there's nothing I like more than watching multiple courts with matches everywhere, dipping in to where there's the latest final set tiebreak or even the latest bit of aggro. And David, don't worry, you can just watch your favourite court, Suzanne Longlen, all day if you want. But whatever you choose, the French Open promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Do you know, I think in a lot of ways, the French Open is now my favourite slam. It's the strategy of the clay court tennis, the way it challenges players, and particularly now with legends of the game up against a new generation of young players. I cannot wait. Be there when it happens with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Subscribe to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription. Um, Also going on last week were were a couple of ATP events and a couple of WTA events as well, which which caught my attention. It was one of those because the late nights were so extreme because of the Labour Cup, but then Emma Raducanu was playing in Seoul. Uh, we were we were still getting up early in the morning. A lot of the British media were to watch watch her matches, and actually, she played really well. I thought she she won three successive matches for the first time since the U.S. Open last year. She reached a semi final for the first time since last year. Ended up losing to Yelena Ostapenko despite winning the first set. Had to retire in set number three. Um, Simon Briggs has written a piece saying, you know, she has to invest now in somebody who's going to help build her a physique and a, and a, a robustness that can can handle the tour. Because I think it is something like five retirements since the US Open that she won. Um, and look, I, I do think there's there's a lot to say for what for what Simon's writing there, and I'm sure Emma Raducanu will will know that herself. I mean, she's not she's not going to be happy and satisfied with what's going on just at the moment. But just in terms of the level she produced, and I know it was a, a WTA 250, so it was a lot lower level. But I was encouraged by her tennis, much more so than I, than I was at Wimbledon earlier this year and, and also at the US Open. I think the, some of the solidity and the, the ambition to her ball striking was back and she was withstanding the power of the opponents again. Um, so, you know, good luck to her um, as she tries to figure it all out. Uh, but uh, it was Ostapenko who reached the final, eventually lost out to Ekaterina Alexandrova, 7-6-6 love. Um, I mean, Ostapenko, Catherine, on her own, she <laughs> she would make a tournament draw for me. And that's probably always been the case. But because I was exposed to a few of her matches this week and there weren't that many big names, I realised she's just one of the one of the best watches around still. Oh, yes. Yes, I... I just love receiving any message in the Tennis Podcast WhatsApp group with the word Ostapenko in it because... 
<laughs> I know it's going to lead to a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. <laughs> um, yeah, she's she's just non-stop entertainment, isn't she? Always delivers. She's not going to be everyone's cup of tea, but no. she doesn't mind that. I don't mind that. I love it. Um, yeah, she's she's just great. Um, so Alexandrova won the title. The doubles title was won by Kristina Mladenovic and Janina Wickmeyer. Um, in Tokyo, the title was won there. The singles by Ludmila Samsonova. She didn't drop a set. She beat uh, Zheng Chinwen, 7-5, 7-5 in the final, who is continuing to make strides. It's, it's easy to forget that Zheng is only 19 and we'd only heard of her for the first time really at the French Open this year at least I had um, and Samsonova she kind of keeps quietly doing this she doesn't get the headlines but she often wins wins titles yes I think it was uh, Ben Rothenberg on Twitter that pointed out that she's on an incredibly similar trajectory this second half of the season to to what Annette Contivate was on last last year just just hitting form, bulldozing through, slightly disappointing at the slams. She was slightly disappointing at, at the US Open, wasn't she? Um, not, I think she reached third round, didn't she? But uh, um, <clears throat> hasn't quite done it at the highest level. But at, at tour level, she's just sort of sweeping all before her at the moment. Um, so I expected to have an incredibly disappointing 2023, <laughs> as uh, <laughs> Annette has um, kind of a, a blessing and a curse. Um, but it it will be interesting, you know, it's the perennial thing of having success at the end of a season post US Open. What does it mean? How do you carry on the momentum? How do you keep it going into the following season? Many a great player has struggled with it. Garbina Muguruza um, has struggled with it. It's going to be very interesting. Also, a bit of disappointing news in Tokyo was that Naomi Osaka was forced to withdraw from her match. I think round two or round three in uh, in Tokyo, which you know it's always a shame to see her unable to play at any time, but particularly in Tokyo. So I hope she's uh, fit again soon. the The doubles title was won by Gabby Dubrovsky and Juliana Olmos. So well done to them. And in the ATP tournament in Metz which has got a soft spot in my heart after I uh, suggested Mets might be the tournament, I think, many a time ago that Felix Ogialiassim should try and win. <laughs> he was otherwise in, involved in uh, in Labour Cup, and also he's already won Rotterdam this year. So he, he got his win in the end, Catherine. You don't need Mets after you've scaled the heights of Rotterdam. <laughs> That's right. But uh, Lorenzo Sonigo did. Uh, and he won the title. So that was all right for him. Next and it stop, actually, Rotterdam, Lorenzo. Yes. And he's had a terrible time, hasn't he, really, a lot of this year. I, I've noticed, you know, he, he actually said in his post-match quotes that he's had a difficult time of late. And, and and if you look at his year, he lost a lot of matches having broke on the scene last year and, and really sort of announced himself. But he won this title. He beat Alexander Bublik 7-6-6-2. There was a, a point doing the rounds halfway through the second set where Bublik tries to do a put-away forehand with his racket handle, which uh, oh. didn't go down well in all quarters. 
Uh, where, where do you stand on on that kind of? What was the score? Uh, fr- frivolity. It was something. I mean, it was it was a live match, st- still very much a live match at this point, and he and he's about to win the point. He turns the racket upside down, holds the head of the racket, and tries to put it away with his handle, skews it off, and loses the point. He's one of those players that brings into question entire philosophical debate about tanking, isn't he? What? When is tanking not tanking? When is tanking strategic tanking? When is it actually sort of in the big picture good for the individual? You know, he he has to do it that way, doesn't he? That's the only way he can play professional tennis. And sometimes he needs to to sort of tank a few points in order to sort of regroup for, for the remainder of the match. Um, so I'd say I'm going to um, sit on the fence and say context is everything. I can't <laughs> give a ruling without greater context. I think there are some scenarios in which I would find that offensive to the sport and some in which I would laugh and enjoy it very much. Yes. Okay. Fine. <laughs> I'll take that as an answer. Actually, I mean, really, the story of the tournament in many ways was Stan Wawrinka, who got to the semi-finals and really rolled back the years for, for a few rounds. He beat Daniel Medvedev, who seemed to have a bit of a mental capitulation in the middle of that match. Um, he, he just seemed to lose his mind with the crowd. Some of the gestures that he was giving towards them were a bit concerning, I've got to be honest. Um, and... Uh, but Stan Wawrinka was brilliant, and unfortunately for him, in the semi-finals, he he pulled out midway through, injured. So just hope he's going to be okay because at this point where Federer's leaving and we're seeing Nadal and Murray trying to hold on and uh, to their careers, the the more we can get out of Stan Wawrinka, the better because he's just he's just good good times to to watch as a tennis player, isn't he, Catherine? Still, when you watch him hit his stride, there's still nothing quite like him. Yeah, and um, Matt, in his early stages of illness and jet lag upon returning from from uh, from the US this time last week, very much enjoyed Wawrinka Medvedev, didn't he? He was glorying in that Wawrinka performance on our on our WhatsApp group moments before being struck down by Lurgy. Yes. We're not used to Matt just suddenly going quiet and <laughs> and not being very I'm well. I'm on the edge of my seat um, here, Matt. What happened? <laughs> Sorry, can't talk at the moment. I suddenly feel absolutely awful. Uh, but anyway, get well soon, Matt, is the most important thing. And get well soon, Stan Vavrinka, too. Doubles title was won by Niers, Niers and Zelinski um, in the ATP San Diego tournament, uh, which was overnight our time. First title for Brandon Nakashima, won in his home city and over a practice partner in Marcus Garone. Um, nice story, that, for Nakashima. I saw some of the, the moments at the end of it. He was really quite overwhelmed. It was his third final of the year. It's his first title. He's up to 48 in the rankings. I, I sort of I don't really know what the the prospects are for Nakashima. He seems like a good, solid player who doesn't let you down, but I'm not sure whether there's a, a top twenty in him, for instance. But a good player and a good pro. Yeah, I, I, I definitely don't think he's done rising up the rankings. Um I definitely think he'll be top thirty, probably a top top twenty player. Um mm. 
remains to be seen if he'll go any further than that. Doesn't have a big weapon. Um, not that you know you can get to the top without a big weapon. See Novak Djokovic. Um, but you have to be so blooming good at everything. And he's very, very good at everything. He's just not Novak, Novak Djokovic. But I think he's mentally very tough. I've seen a few matches of his where I've been really impressed with his temperament on the court. Um, and that can take you very far. And lovely, smooth strokes. It, he's one of those players that it's very easy to damn with faint praise. You know, solid, dependable, yeah. lots of unsexy words. But he's a very good tennis player and easy to watch. Yeah. Um, just a, a, a note on the the Davis Cup group stages that we missed out on covering last week because of, of being away for a week. Um, that was the the week before the one just gone, and it was the group stages held in four value, four venues: one in Italy in Bologna, one in Valencia in Spain, one in Hamburg Germany, and one in Glasgow Great Britain, which is the one we were obviously concentrating more on that was the one that was in front of us it was it was shown on the BBC uh, iPlayer so got to see quite a lot of that and in the matches that Britain were involved in absolutely brilliant atmosphere and actually Britain the only host nation not to go through beaten by the United States and Netherlands um, in final sort of rubber doubles matches which I really enjoy as a concept I, I mean these matches are now best of three rubbers as opposed to best of five when when two nations meet but they've they've got to play three matches in their their group stages I quite like the idea of having the doubles deciding it all I know it does sometimes mean that those matches don't get played but I did enjoy them um and actually you know you were, you were talking earlier on Catherine about playing the double the best doubles team and in the instance of the British team in Davis Cup, they chose Andy Murray, who's obviously been there, done it, has been a brilliant doubles player, has been a brilliant singles player, has won the Davis Cup almost single-handedly for Britain. Okay, not single-handedly, but a massive part of their win in 2015. But he was part of the two doubles teams that, that lost in Glasgow, and, and they did have Neil Skupski, an excellent doubles player on the bench. It it, it asks another question, I suppose, doesn't it? And and it's... I I'm, I... I personally understand why Leon Smith made that call. I probably would have done the same thing myself. But, you know, what do you do? What Do you go with the old hero um, who might not quite have it anymore? Or do you go for the, the established doubles player in that situation? It's so difficult. Yeah, well, in the, in the words of Dan Evans that I had ringing in my ears um, throughout those defeats last week, when he was being asked after his second round win at the US Open. Um, I went to his press conference after that and that was there were there were a lot of we had a lot of men do do well in the first week of the US Open, didn't we? Lots mm. of them through to, to round two. I think four of them through to round three. Um <clears throat> with some people predicting that all four of them would go through to round four. Um and Dan Evans was being asked about, you know, what that meant for Leon Smith's decisions at the Davis Cup and it was put to him look Andy Murray's probably currently you know the weakest on this list and Dan quipped back well you'd be a brave man not to pick Andy Murray to play in Glasgow Um, and maybe it was a touch of the Labour Cups about it you know perhaps a slightly sentimental pick I don't know if it feels wrong to say that about Andy Murray he's 
He's he's still an extremely good tennis player and has won great doubles matches. But I do think he needs the right partner. Um, and, you know, it's not like there was no evidence for Murray and Salisbury's um, success together on doubles court. They beat Herbert Mau at the Olympics last year, didn't they? And lost out to Mektic Pavic. No shame in in any any of that. So there was some data su- to suggest they'd been successful. Um, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but I'd have been very tempted to play Dan Evans and Neil Skubsky, who have had really great recent success on the tour in doubles, proven as a team together. Um, but I know Dan Evans was playing singles and well as well, and that would have been a big ask. But I think physically is up to it. I mean, he's as fit as he's mm. ever been. He can't get enough of playing tennis. That's probably what I'd have gone with. But that's extremely easy for me to say. Yeah, and and that is the one thing with Britain's good doubles players. They're good doubles players at the moment with non-British partners. Mm. Joe Salisbury with Rajiv Ram, um, Neil Skubsky with Wesley Kulhoff. So, you know, you you can understand that, that it's it, it's not straightforward. There's not an obvious choice. There's a, there's a lot of good contenders for it. Um in the other groups, Italy threw 3 and 0 in their in group A at home. Second was Croatia. Um Spain topped group B in Valencia, but only just. They were actually they took a loss at the hands of Canada. We mentioned the, the win for Carlos Alcaraz, uh for Ogialisim rather over Carlos Alcaraz. And uh, and Canada ended up being second. Now, this was a bit controversial, Catherine, because Canada lost 4-0 in the qualifying rounds in March, but they were given a wild card into the group stages in September by the Davis Cup steering committee as replacements for last year's champions russia who've been banned from the competition as a result of the invasion of ukraine now andy roddick tweeted out over the weekend over that weekend that it would be tough to consider canada legitimate champions if they ended up winning the event Uh, he said that the rule was made up on a whim to allow them in Uh, marty fish the u.s davis cup captain he'd already been outspoken about that fat wondering what on earth Canada was still doing in the event I mean it it does make it difficult because well what do you do with the place that had been occupied by Russia um Roddick reckons they should have just left a space you know and basically had a buy um other people were saying well in qualifying you can lose and go and enter as a lucky loser and win a tournament but Roddick was saying well there's no precedent for that in the Davis Cup and and that's the difference so it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, but but it it's wound up a lot of people. That. And the lucky loser in that scenario isn't chosen by steering committee. The lucky loser. I know there's mm. a slightly arbitrary system of sort of who can sign in the quickest, but there is still some sort of uh, <clears throat> independent feeling system. Steering committee doesn't feel right. No matter no matter how pure the intentions of that committee. That doesn't feel right. There needs to be something formal, written in stone. This is what happens. If if you're not going to initially, go with... it was ranking, right? Um, but Serbia were already in, and they were the next ones ranked sufficiently so highly. Then don't up, you keep going down the rankings? Until... Yeah, I mean, and I think maybe that's what they did do. I'm not entirely sure, but but even so, it, it really did wind people up. That mm. did, um, and will make it very interesting now yeah, because it'll, it'll be Canada were brilliant. If they do, do well if they win. They they absolutely could win. They got great players. 
yeah um so we'll we'll wait and see what what ends up happening with that serbia by the by the way third and out um despite winning two of their three matches novak Djokovic didn't play this this uh, set of ties um but they still won two out of the three and and don't go through um in hamburg germany topped the group 3 3 and 0 um, they weren't playing with Alexander Zverev. He was due to play, but he sustained another injury, which sounds as if it might end his season, actually. Uh, this is a different one to the, the sprained ankle he had at the, the French Open. He, he got it in practice, apparently, in the, the lead-up to this thing. So Jan Leonard Struff and Oscar Otter played the singles. Um, they won all of their ties 2-1. Australia also threw. They finished second. France are out. Um, so that's completes the lineup for the uh, the Davis Cup finals which will be taking place basically at the end of the season aren't they they're they're in November after the ATP finals so late November and that's all going to take place in Malaga um just on a, a, a quick final note um just on the crowds i mentioned those ties that involved involving britain were really well attended fantastic crowds in glasgow great atmosphere not the case in every tie between every nation. Um, probably understandably between nations that weren't the home nations. Um, one of our colleagues showed a video in in Germany, in, in Hamburg, of two nations that weren't Germany. And there weren't that many people in the crowds. Now, Cosmos, who obviously own the, the, the Davis Cup these days... They said that between 13th and 18th of September, a total of 113,268 people attended the group stage of the Davis Cup uh, by Rakuten Finals 2022 across the four cities. This mirrors the numbers achieved in 2021 for the entire group stages and the knockout stages. So there was a significant increase on previous years. That's 113,000. Just compare that, though, to the Labour Cup which brought through 96,000 in just six sessions um, in one city. And, and I think that you, you get understand. And look, I don't think either event is perfect. Um, I'd love to combine the two somehow and have the, the sort of staging and the panache of the Labour Cup and all that it brings, but the, the meaning of the Davis Cup, which is still something where you would not get people opposing captains you know, letting you get through on a technicality in order to, to let somebody play a final match, if that's how it was not meant to be in the rules. Um, you know, it's just interesting to compare and contrast the two. And and I think it shows that Davis Cup, well, I think they're trying to work it out, aren't they? They're, they've tried to make it, they've made a big change. They've realized elements don't work i think that this was better having lots more home ties for four of the nations but they've still got they've still got a, a way to go i think in truth um so we'll see what, what what it ends up like in malaga now next week there are atp 250 events quite interesting this that novak Djokovic is playing in tel aviv in israel uh, the tournament there alongside marin Cilic and diego schwartzman uh in sofia yannick sinner's playing with public arena buster uh, Lorenzo Massetti as well uh, in Seoul, Kasper Ruud, uh, Cameron Norrie, um, Taylor Fritz and Denis Shapovalov. We've got WTA 250s in Tallinn with Annette Contivate, Belinda Bencic and Beatrice Haddad Meyer. Uh, in Parma, we've got Maria Sakkari and Sloane Stevens. So loads of events happening this week. We'll keep an eye on all of them. We aim to be back a week from now. <laughs> hopefully all feeling a bit better than we are um and hopefully with mac 
Matt back in town. We're going to save the shout outs for when Matt ret- returns. <laughs> no one wants their shout out on this episode, David. <laughs> Not least because I don't know how to get hold of them without Matt. <laughs> so, uh, I also want to say get well soon to Darius Saville, who uh, tore an ACL, an uh, anterior cruciate oh, ligament. She can't catch a break, can no, she? Poor so thing. sorry for her. Um, and I hope she can make a full recovery. Yeah, here, here. Good health very soon. We'll also save the mascot this week because I, I again I don't know what we do without Matt. I'm gonna have to figure this out, aren't I? In case he's not fit next week. Um, but what I can do is say hello to our mascots. That's Darwin, Carter, and uh, the dearly departed Gerald. To our executive producers Chris Albert Lee and Carl Weingartner. To Billy Jean, the dogs sponsor Billy Jean King and Alana Kloss. And yeah, we don't have shout outs. <laughs> so, 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 Catherine, all I can say is thank you for for still appearing on this Reflecting podcast. Reflecting yourself on the listeners. <laughs> Despite <laughs> because the Because we had no other option. No. You're welcome, David. Thank Likewise. Uh, and thank you all for listening. Um, and if you're still listening now, <laughs> you're the true listeners. <laughs> so, uh, we'll see you all next week. Take care. And bye-bye for now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.